Uh, mental illness, first of all, is not a choice. No one chooses it. It's not a weakness. It's not something that you allow to happen to yourself. It's an illness, a sickness like anything else. What's up, everybody? This is Fred Ricciani of TSC News, the sports courier. We have right here via Google Meet a very special guest. He is a true Canadian broadcasting legend, spent three decades with TSN, recently left TSN, was the host of Off the Record, one of the longest running Canadian TV shows in history. And on top of that, he's also one of the top mental health advocates in the country. Most importantly, he is the leader of a movement of a great organization by the name of Sick Not Weak. We are here to talk about the mental health movement. And we are here to talk about his legendary career and everything else. We're talking to Michael Landsberg. Michael, we went through a whole lot of technical difficulties, as you know, before the start of this interview. You were talking about one before with Anthony Kiedis. Can you share it and how awkward it was to have to entertain the lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers for however long? Anthony Kiedis was a guest on Off the Record. Just listen to this. And I hear in my ear, and I'm I'm pumped. It's Anthony freaking Kiedis, man. Mm -hmm. So I'm all I'm all psyched for this. And uh the producer of the show, Bob Makowitz, says to me in my ear, uh, we got some problems, you're gonna have to stall for time. So I said, Bob, follow me on this. Uh he Kiedis couldn't hear this. So I go to Anthony Kiedis. Uh Anthony, ask me any question you want about your life, about music, about anything to do with the red hot chili peppers, because Bob Makowitz, the producer who was in my my ear and was listening to me is a massive music expert. So Kita starts to ask me these questions and I get all of them, like, cause Bob's telling me the answers in my ear. Right. And he goes, Oh man, that is unbelievable. And you know, sports too. Never met a guy with your range of knowledge. And, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, um, that's a moment I was pretty proud of. That's, that's pretty awesome. And I, I think one thing you should be really proud of, if you're not already is the incredible movement you have right now with your organization, Sick Not Weak. Now, most people who have heard of you probably know you from Off the Record, which is a legendary Canadian sports talk show that was on TSN for well over almost two decades, right? About 18 years or so. Yeah. And in general, you were with TSN for like 30 years. You've been on TV for about four decades at least. Well, um, no, but uh, I have uh, I figured out when I left about a month ago, uh, I had basically done a daily show of some kind, whether it was Sports Center, which I did first and then off the record and then a show called First Up. I had done a daily show uh, every day, basically, of my adult life. Uh, and that, you know, if, if you said to me, hey, Michael, why'd you leave? And the, the answer would be because I did a daily show every day of my adult life. And I wanted to I, I wanted to feel the thrill. This is going to sound really weird, but I wanted to feel the fear of failure, um, which I think is a really healthy thing to feel. And when you do the same show, you know, you don't fear failure the same way that you do if you start a new show or if you start something else. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of glad that I'm, you know, not forced, not forced to, I'm, I'm not doing a show every day. I don't know how much details you could give us. It sounds like it was your decision to leave TSN after three decades. Is that correct? It, it was, uh, but they made it easy for me, right? It's not like they went, oh my God, you can't leave us. No, there's no TSN without you. Um, but I felt like, uh, there was other stuff I wanted to do. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's this, this may sound kind of morose, but I also thought to myself, you know, I've seen some, some bad shit with, uh, with my mom who had Alzheimer's, 
Uh, I've seen it through friends uh, and their parents. Uh, I've seen it on set really early for some people. And I thought to myself, and again, this may sound really sort of down, but I thought, you know, I'm still exactly what I was when I was 24 and I started at TSN. Uh, I'm, I'm still that same person. Whatever I had then, I have now. So now is the time to go and challenge myself and find out whether there's other things I can do uh, in the same sort of area, but if I could extrapolate my skills from one thing to another. Now, of course, one of the things you're doing right now is the highly inspirational, very transparent Lands blog and your overall movement with Sick Not Weak, your organization that, that you founded after detailing your own mental health struggles, your battles with depression. We see kind of like not the end result, but the ever going results of you inspiring people and the work we did with Bell, Let's Talk and, and, all, and all that jazz. And it's awesome. But in order to solve a problem or in order to help fix a problem, you got to admit that you have a problem. So one, when did you realize that you had a problem? And two, when did you decide to go public with that, which led to sick, not weak? Okay. When off the record started in uh, 1997, uh, it was probably about six months after we started that I knew I had a problem. I mean, I, I could tell you the story, but you're not going to have time to hear all of my stories, especially when I go off topic like Anthony Kiedis. Um, <laughs> and make no mistake, I will take this in a direction that you may not expect, uh, but hopefully it'll be worthwhile. <laughs> God, I'm such an ass sometimes. Um, and that actually really kind of sums up my broadcasting career in a lot of ways to this point, where I was always the guy where you went, I don't know, do I like him or is he obnoxious? You know, is he arrogant or is he just confident? Uh, and I was kind of that ambiguous guy that people, liked, I think, not to like at times. But when I realized that I was sick, and it took me about six months of severe depression to realize that that's what it was. Uh, because you, 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 mental illnesses do not hit you like, bam, like I'm sitting here right now. If I had a heart attack right now, I, I would know I'm having a heart attack. But mental illness is such a, a, a small change that you experience. It's like every night someone creeps into your bed and takes off just a little tiny piece of you. Uh, and you don't notice it because it's so small. But after six months for me of losing a tiny piece of me, I realized that I had lost all of me and that I was changed, that the person I was, I no longer was. And the person I had become, I disliked intensely. And that's when I went for help the first time. And uh, when did I first talk about it publicly? This is such a local story for you. you are you a hockey fan? I, I am not. Please don't hate me. Oh, no. I, why would I, I? See, you just stereotyped a Canadian like, oh, he's going to be pissed off if, he, if uh, I don't like hockey. Um, and you told me don't to judge you by Jersey Shore, right? So uh, you shouldn't do the same thing for me. But the reason why Fair I point. asked you that is that in uh, October of 2009, coming off the worst year and a half of my life with depression. Uh, I was doing better, and there was a guest on the show, and here's the local angle, Stefan Riche. Stefan Riche was a New Jersey Devil. Stefan Riche won the Stanley Cup with the New Jersey Devils. And I had read that he had battled depression uh, throughout his career, and it really deprived him of the chance to experience the joy the two Stanley Cups, two 50-goal seasons should have given him. 
Uh, and when I read that, I thought, oh, that'll make an interesting question. Uh, but I had never spoken about depression. This is 2009. So we're talking like more than 10 years after I first experienced it. I never talked about it on television because I never thought it would have any benefit whatsoever. I wasn't the least bit ashamed or embarrassed. I didn't. I, it wasn't that I was um, keeping it as a secret because I didn't want people to know. I thought people would go, eh, Landsberg, he just wants our sympathy. He wants us to like him. You know, oh, boo, freaking who? So I didn't talk about it just because because uh, I was an idiot, essentially, and I had not realized the impact of sharing. So Stefan Riche is a guest on the show. I had just moments before read that he had battled depression, went down to the green room, said, can you come outside for a second? I said, look, you don't know me. I just met you. You don't owe me anything. But would it be OK if I asked you about your battle with depression? And he said, it's uh, it's very painful. I don't like to talk about it. And I said, OK, well, uh, then I don't want to ask you about it. But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. And he said, you? And I said, yeah, me. And I, he said, you? I said, yeah, me. Hello, you fool people. Why can't I fool people? So I told him about myself. We went on the air after he said, okay, let's do it. We talked for maybe 90 seconds. He told me, amongst other things, that when he won the Stanley Cup in New Jersey, he was, um, uh, he was driving back five days after winning the Cup, and he tried to take his own life. He said, imagine you know, this great thing happens. I win my second Stanley Cup and all I want to do is I want to get away from everything, everyone. I want to leave this planet. He said, but uh, I didn't kill myself. I wasn't successful and I went for help, but now I'm doing okay. So I said to him, well, you know, without the wild successes you had, that's a very similar story to me. I understand that why uh, an illness or how an illness can deprive you of the ability to experience joy. And for me, that's at the heart of depression, the loss of the ability to experience joy. So, Fred, what happened, uh, the show went to air from 6 to 6.30 Eastern time. And at 6.30, I was having dinner with my wife and my wife's family. And um, my phone, as the saying goes, blew up. Now, most people, when they say their phone blew up, didn't really, like, blow up. This was insane. These were messages from people, almost all of them saying the same thing. They all said it was the first time they've heard two men speaking about depression or mental illness without shame and embarrassment. And because I, uh, because me and Stefan shared, people were sharing with me. They were telling me this secret that they never told another human being. I was blown away. I was, uh, and that changed my life. That changed the course of my life because I realized that, hey, I don't mind talking about this. I like talking about this. I like talking, period. And if I can use the worst thing in my life, depression, as one of the best things in my life, sharing and making a difference in people's lives, then, wow, this is amazing. Wow, that that's incredible. So when it came to founding Sick Not, Not Week, what would you say is the ultimate goal? Obviously, raising awareness and everything else, but, but long-term, do you see yourself like working with different you know sports organizations working with with schools with universities what, what what's the long term goal for you guys you know I, I think that's the short term goal the short term goal is that uh, I, I I want people to say hey you know what um, we should have him speak to our group whether it's an association whether it's uh, whether it's a hockey team whether it's uh, whether it's a publicly traded company whether it's a small company I mean I've done a lot of that over the last 
five years, say, where I've probably given at least one talk a week. And what I say when people say, you know, like, why you and not somebody else? I say, well, you know, I, I don't know who the other person is, but I can tell you that it will be unique and that I will share deeper and uh, more candidly and more openly and less corporate and less sanitized than anyone you've ever met. And that is where the real power is, because when you share what mental illness feels like to you, not that you have it. Like, it's one thing to say, hey, I battled depression. It's another thing to say, hey, I battled depression. And you know, on my bad days, I lose my self-esteem. I don't believe in myself. The same things that I could do in my sleep, I start to doubt. That's where the real value is. So that's in the short term. That's in the long term. I, I want to find ways to present mental health talk in a, in a, um, in a different way than it has been. Um, much the way I just described it, you know, unsanitized, not corporate, um, not protected, um, because that's how people talk, right? If you want to get through to real people, then talk the way real people talk. Uh, and ultimately, the goal is going to always be the same, which is to show people that mental illness is a sickness, not a weakness. And the perception of weakness, Fred, is really what keeps people in the closet. What keeps people from sharing is that nobody wants to be seen as weak. And if you see something like depression as a weakness, then you're never going to share. Did it piss you off then during the Olympic season when all these journalists were just dissing Simone Biles and calling her not a leader and everything else? And it's like, wait a second, like she's putting herself first and her health first. Like what, what the hell is going on here? You, you mean like the same networks, the same uh, entities that were advocating for mental health and this and that are the same ones that are also exploiting her, her real life situation. I mean, as a sports guy, I'm sure it kind of had to piss you off. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it pissed me off for sure, uh, but I also liked it. And let me, before I sound like a total d let me explain to you what I mean by I liked it. It brought this issue forward. And if you listen to the arguments that people were giving, how, you know, she's let her team down, she's not a leader, she should put her uh, country first, and all the things they were saying, I think that's the best way to convince people that they're wrong about their opinion. Uh, because, and that's how I ended up with Sick Not Weak, right? I was giving a speech years ago when I first started uh, coming out and giving speeches. And I begged the audience, I said, we know the stigmas out there. Someone challenge me on mental illness. Someone say, you know what, Michael, you, you have depression. I understand it's not good, but it's not like you have cancer. Someone said that. Someone say that, please. And someone, and so a guy said, okay. Uh, and I said, thank you. You know, I'm not going to get mad, obviously. I just, I, I want us to debate this so people can hear the debate. You know, people can hear my side and your side. And we went through this whole thing. And I said, hey, you know, thank you for doing that. I just want you to know that I was giving a, a lecture or a speech in a, in, a, in a hospital. I said, look, you know, a hospital is a place for sick people. I'm sick, but I'm not weak. And that kind of stuck. And with Simone Biles, I think if, if you listen to what people were saying about her and you were kind of on the fence to me, there's a pretty good chance that if you heard that, you go, oh, that guy's an idiot. I can't believe that he would, uh, you know, that, that he would say those things or she would say those things about that woman. You know, I feel bad for her. And therefore, I kind of see mental illness as being a sickness or an injury just like anything else. Powerful stuff, man. And as far as 
people, if they, if they want to learn more, if, if they want to take the, the first steps and they may have a problem, getting help for a problem, where can they go as far as your website and some of the resources you direct them to? Yeah, you know, you know, it's, uh, I mean, anybody who's listening to that obviously is, is listening right now. So this is my best chance, actually, my best chance at making a difference in someone's life. I mean, sure, I could say, uh, you know, sicknotweek.com, michaellandsberg.ca. Um, those, uh, those two websites are where we kind of live on Twitter at Hey Landsberg. But I'm not here to promote anything other than um, the, the thoughts that I have, which can make a difference to other people. So if, if you're listening right now and you say, hey, you know, I need, I need to feel like I'm understood, then listen to what I, I've got to say. Uh, mental illness, first of all, is not a choice. No one chooses it. It's not a weakness. It's not something that you allow to happen to yourself. It's an illness, a sickness like anything else. And at the heart of the sickness is this loss of the ability to experience joy. So, you know, that's, uh, and okay, here's point number two that I think is uh, equally important. That loss of the ability to experience joy, Fred, is impossible for somebody who has not been through mental illness to understand. You can't understand it. And no, no, I couldn't understand it before uh, because the concept that you have in your mind of depression is that Michael is sad. He's down in the dumps. So I'll do something nice for him, right? I'll take him out for dinner or I'll do this or that. I'll, I'll give him, you know, something nice. Uh, and the belief is to the healthy brain that that is going to make a difference in my depression. You can't understand the idea that it's not about the circumstances of my life. It's about the brain chemistry somehow in my head is off. And you giving me a gift or taking me out for dinner or telling me I should go for a nice walk is not going to change the brain chemistry in my head. And the assumption that it will is highly annoying to people like me who, uh, you know, who through friends and family and not, not so much me because my family, I think, was always really good about it. But the idea that uh, you think you can solve someone's problems by giving them something. Uh, or using your wisdom is wrong. So I'm here to say that uh, if you're going through it, then you understand exactly what I'm saying. It's like I'm speaking a language that you can understand, but your uh, your partner, who's also listening and watching right now, can't understand because they haven't been through it. That's a key point. People can't understand what depression is. And, you know, I, I always think of... Uh, analogies or metaphors. And the best one I can think of for this is um, that when you get a cold, right, you say, uh, you know, your nose is blocked and you're talking like this and you say, oh, man, I feel like crap. I'm going to treat myself to something nice. I'm going to get a pizza. And you take a bite of the pizza and you go, I can't taste the pizza. Well, why can't you taste the pizza? The answer is temporarily you've lost your ability to taste. That's depression, apply it to feeling joy and apply it to yourself or somebody else. That's depression, the loss of that ability. And if you know that and you know other people experience that and other people understand the loneliness and the hopelessness that can come from these illnesses, then at least you have a small bit of comfort and a small bit of confidence that you're not a loser, that this is not a self-inflicted wound, that others experience the same thing. And that can be really powerful. All right, Michael. Well, I don't really know how to follow that. That's super powerful, super inspirational. Is it okay if I ask you, though, about your broadcasting career? 
You can ask me, I told you beforehand, you can ask me any question you want. You can ask me like, like literally anything and I will answer it. Um, I've, I've said that, you know, a lot of times um, when I go to speak in front of an audience before the pandemic, I would go and, you know, you'd go to um, the, the best thing I ever did was end up going to small towns to speak because you speak to like an entire community. And I'll say always, hey, ask me anything you want. This is this is a chance to talk to someone who's talking about their illness or anything else you want to ask. And I always think, is someone ever going to ask about like my sex life or, you know, when I lost my virginity or something like that? And no one's ever done it. So um, fire away. Well, sorry to disappoint. I don't think I'll be asking about, about that with all due respect. But. A lot of the people who follow me, who follow TSC, may know you not just from your various sports interviews, but specifically some of your legendary wrestling interviews. Just to put it into context for some of the younger viewers, maybe some viewers that, or listeners that aren't necessarily familiar with you, you were kind of like the OG, one of the first guys on a TV format to do the quote-unquote shoot interview with wrestlers, as in out of character. You're one of the few guys early on that interviewed Undertaker out of character. You stood toe-to-toe with Vince McMahon, with Eric Bischoff, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, the list goes on and on back in, in you know the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, I watched a couple interviews you did with Vince McMahon where one at the time when he was getting his ass kicked in, by WCW, and you were very upfront to his face about that. And then a few years later when, of course, he gobbled up WCW and ECW, which was a very different conversation. Looking back around that time, I know you're not technically like a wrestling guy, but even that back then, did you as a broadcaster know like, hey, I'm doing something different here? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I, I mean, I was obviously aware of the ratings boost that we would get from putting a wrestler on, right? You know, we, uh, we averaged uh, at first, let's say the first five years at, uh, at 6 p.m. I mean, keep in mind, this is Canada. We averaged like 110,000 viewers, um, which was crazy successful and way beyond technically um, what we were putting out there. I mean, some days it was a good show and some days it was a crappy show. Uh, but back then, you know, TSN ruled, you know, it was TSN's empire. Uh, so we would put a wrestling guest on. And all of a sudden, like I remember on a holiday Monday, I took the day off and we played the Stone Cold interview um, for like the fifth time. And it generated a half million viewers wow. at six o'clock, a half million viewers on uh, on a cable network in Canada is impossible impossible to to um to get anything even close to that and it's not like you know because of my brilliance that the people watched uh it was a combination of factors number one the wrestling audience is the only portable audience that i know of that exists like if you said okay uh coming up tomorrow and off the record we've got the ghost of gordy howe the ghost of maurice the rocket richard and making a rare appearance will be wayne gretzky the three of them on our set tomorrow you'd probably get like 120,000 people to watch. You get a tiny bump. But wrestling was insane. Our wrestling interviews were amazing, and not because of me. I, I was lucky enough to be working with, A, uh, the guy I mentioned, Bob Makowitz, the guy in my ear, uh, who was uh, a, a very much a wrestling fan. Uh, and we had a guy uh, that was his best friend uh, who now uh, has had a really successful on-air career. His name is Jeff Merrick. And Jeff Merrick did a show called Live Audio Wrestling, which was kind of like the definitive radio voice of wrestling. He knew everyone. He talked to everybody on the phone, like privately, off the air. He gave me and Bob gave me these questions that were so good. 
all I had to do essentially was have the guts to ask them and to uh, and to execute it. So uh, were those interviews great? Yeah, I think they were. Was I the reason why they were great? Definitely not. Looking back and, w- and watching them now in, in 2021 eyes, I mean, you seem to not shy away from some of the tough questions on whether they came to mind or, or, or they were fed to you. I mean, you seemed like you really had kind of like no fear. And, and some of those conversations got heated. And, and in general, not just for the wrestling interviews, were there yeah. ever times where you got a little uncomfortable or were you always as cool and calm as you portrayed yourself on TV? You, you know, uh, I love that. If If you said to me, Hey, Michael, what's your favorite interview? I would say, you know, my the things I enjoyed the most are are having interviews with people who I think are smarter than me and have thick enough skin to be able to take it. So that means in that scenario, I can go my hardest, right? I can I can listen to what they say, which is kind of this this thing that I have. I don't know if it's an asset or a liability, but I hear every syllable that comes out of your mouth. I hear everything. And sometimes I choose not to point them out, but I hear everything. So here uh, in that situation, I want a guy uh, that I can challenge. And keep in mind, because you do the same sort of job, the, the toughest thing about it is you're challenging somebody on their life, right? So here I am, I'm, I'm going with Vince McMahon, and I'm challenging him on his world. So I better be damn sure of knowing what I'm talking about. Otherwise, I look like a jackass, right? Because this is, I am now in his world. And I better be conversant enough with his world to be able to talk it through. I loved that. I mean, the Vince McMahon interviews, I loved. Dana White became the new Vince McMahon for me in a lot of ways. I love those. You know, it was like, okay, let's go. You know, it was like, you know, if you're a fighter, you like a good fight. And in, in, in my case, uh, I, you know, loved a good scrap. And uh, Vince, in particular, um, was obviously uh, capable of uh, of beating me if if he so chose i think he probably uh, would have taken me down but um he made a pretty even playing field and i love that looking back you did challenge people you did also get criticized at times for challenging people or seeing seeming yeah. smug or you know, oh, arrogant yeah. or, or whatever yes. particularly yes. with the chill sun and, and cm punk interviews which were highly entertaining but you know again a little bit a little bit of uh, mixed feedback do you ever look back and say man like oh i like that interview back <laughs> Um, I, I would say, uh, the, the Chael Sonnen interview, uh, I would like back because it's, it's not that I felt like I had asked him anything inappropriate. I was, I, I was not prepared well enough for his obstinance. So I like the way the Chael Sonnen interview shook down was, or the way it happened was, uh, I was in spin class with my daughter and the instructor is a huge UFC fan. And he said to me, you got to get Chael Sonnen on the show. And I said, why? He says, you know, he's the best talker in the UFC. So I thought, yeah, you know, he's a great talker. So we reached out. Uh, he said he would do it. He went to a studio in Portland because it was a double ender. Obviously, it wasn't face to face. And I went the night before. I went to the spin instructor and I said, hey, what do you think I should ask him? He goes, oh, he loves it if you challenge him. You know, like he'll he'll debate with you, but he'll he'll be awesome and he'll love it. So I said, so what do I ask him? He said, well, I kind of poke fun at him that he's afraid of Anderson Silva, that he threw out this offer to Anderson Silva when he was in the octagon after a fight, and now he's taken it away. I go, okay. So I'm up for that. I throw it out, and he goes, what the hell are you talking about? Are you Like he actually went, are you talking to me? 
are you talking to me? You take that tone out of your voice. And at that point, I think, okay, this is good, right? Because like, who would ever say take that tone out of your voice? But he is super pissed. And now he's coming back at me. And I was not well enough prepared uh, about the, the micro aspect of what I had challenged him on. So uh, I didn't love the way I performed, uh, and uh, I loved the result of it. He got up and walked off, which was awesome because, um, because you know, it became, especially for the next year or so, like every place I went, people would say, hey, Chael Sana, was that real? Oh, it was real. Uh, the CM Punk interview, which was uh, e equally hostile, I wouldn't take back anything about that. I asked him the question. I said, you are going to uh, UFC from WWE. And I have to ask you, because uh, you're an amazing wrestler and an amazing talker, have you ever taken a real punch to the face? And he went, whoa, what? I said, well, you know, have you ever taken a real punch to the face? And he said, well, do you not watch wrestling? I said, yeah, and you don't take a real punch to the face. And I thought that was a totally legit question, right? Like, I know when I've crossed the boundaries, I know if I've done something that eh, I probably shouldn't have asked that. Uh, but this was a legit question, and it just went down, down, down. But the best part about this st story, Fred, is that two weeks later, so this was about two weeks before Christmas, whatever year that was, my family and I were going to Las Vegas, and uh, Dana White gave us tickets to UFC. Uh, it was the one, I think, that Anderson Silva broke his leg on. It was it was off. Against Chris Weidman? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. it was like, uh, so he gave us tickets in the second row. So we're sitting in the second row and, you know, people are walking in, you know, so like we're on celebrity row, literally directly behind Mike Tyson, like around all kinds of people that I recognize. And I looked like five seats down to my right. So it's me, uh, my wife on this side, my daughter, my son and his then girlfriend at the time and CM Punk. <laughs> so I think. Okay, he, he doesn't know me, right? Like he wouldn't probably recognize me because he had no return feed. So I watched him in this interview. I'm not sure that he even saw me. So someone's at the door and someone, the dog is going to bark. So I'm just preparing you for it. So I look down and there's CM Punk. So I say to my family, I say, okay, I got to go down there and be face to face with him. I don't want to be the guy, you know, who has the guts to, uh, you know, to say things when a guy's not in the studio, uh, I want to be that guy. So I said to my son, Corey, you record this on your phone. Casey, you come with me because he's less likely to hit me if I'm with my daughter. Uh, so we go down there and uh, I say, uh, hey, um, you know, uh, I don't remember what I called him. Was it CM or what's, what's his real name? Did you call him Phil? <laughs> I don't remember actually what I called him, but whatever it was, was not the story. So I said, uh, Michael Landsberg, he goes, uh, I know who you are. And it's like, whoa, talk about ice cold. So his wife, and one of the questions I asked to him was that you sued the WWE and your wife is still working at the WWE. Is that uncomfortable for you? Again, a legit question. So uh, his wife was with him and I, and I said, pleasure to meet you. This is my daughter, Casey. And she was super sweet. And I'm thinking, okay, she doesn't know, right? So, um, you know, we're talking and I said, hey, I, you know, I just want to come up and say hi. And then she figures it out. And we actually have a still picture of it. She looks so mad and he is so pissed off. It's 
awesome body language. And I'm standing there and I say, look, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I offended you, but not sorry that I asked those questions because I think that's what my job is, right? My job is to ask questions that a viewer wants to ask. Uh, and uh, he went, ah, this was him. Ah, it's fine. If that's the way you want to be, it's fine. I'm okay. You know, you just go. He said, you know, you were friendly with me before we went on the air. And then we go on the air and all of a sudden, you know, you're asking me those questions. I said, well, that doesn't mean I'm not friendly. That doesn't mean I wasn't being friendly. That just means that I think that, you know, the job calls for that. So it was one of my favorite sequences of events of my career. The CM Punk thing, I love that. Now that he's back in pro wrestling, I don't know if you've noticed, I mean, it, his return to All Elite Wrestling, or actually was return to wrestling, his debut for All Elite Wrestling, huge ovation, went viral, massive viewership. Do you think one day... Maybe if AEW makes its way to Canada, that you guys could finally squash your beef? Uh, I mean, I have no beef with him. So uh, I would say the answer is yes. You know, it's like it, it's like he's pissed off. I mean, like I'm long gone from his radar. And by the way, he is uh, he and Chael Son and the two guys that I had um, probably the most tension with are two of the best talkers uh, on the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, CM Punk, I, I heard him do the uh, commentary over the Chicago Blackhawks Stanley Cup parade. Uh, and he was amazing, right? You know, he's just, uh, he's one of those guys who can do almost anything except for one thing, which is probably take a punch. But other than that, the man is, the man is amazing. Uh, totally admire his ability with the microphone and his ability to capture an audience. So good for him. Do you have some time for some quick hits? Some, some random questions we like to Get ask away. and forget. Bring it cool. on. All right. What's your favorite late night snack? Uh, I would say uh, they're called Happy Pops now. Um, we got a subscription, so they deliver these popsicles to our house. The best thing I've ever had. Honest to God, so good. Coconut, pineapple. Oh, sorry, I lost I lost my train of thought there. I was just thinking about the coconut, pineapple, <laughs> pineapple uh, Happy Pop. All right, that sounds pretty good. I got, I got to try one. Who is your saltiest guest of all time, and why is it Eric Bischoff? Uh, Eric Bischoff was just when he was uh, WCW, he came in and he just wanted to fight. I, I don't mean like fight like this, yeah. but it, it was it was it was like this was this was it was like we were in the ring and we were like calling each other out. It was it was awesome. I loved it. Uh, and I knew on that day I better know my shit, right, because Bischoff is talking about his life. And I actually, we made a bet. And he said, if uh, I, I said, well, you know, it's only a matter of time probably before WWE, you know, passes you guys on the Monday Night Wars. And he said something like, you know, I'll give you whatever if they ever beat us on one Monday night. And uh, I, I think they ended up beating, uh, I think WWE beat them like, I don't know, a month later and never gave it up. But, you know, he, he was uh, it was a big challenge. And uh, I interviewed him on radio, actually, a, a couple of months ago. And I, and I loved it. Right. He said uh, I heard him talking about his experience with me. And he said, oh, yeah, Landsberg, you know, that guy was uh, he was OK. I, you know, I kind of liked him. But, you know, he was he was such a Canadian. Right. He just you know, I, he just loved Bret Hart so much that when I said something, he jumped down my throat. Uh, which I didn't remember. It, it may be true, but I, I probably would have jumped down his throat for anything. But uh, um, Eric Bischoff, uh, a fun, fun guy to interview and a really smart guy. Very charming. Yeah. Got an awesome podcast as well. Shout out to him. Oh, he's great. Three weeks of Conrad Thompson. Are you still tight with Bret Hart? I watched uh, some of your old interviews where you mentioned that you and Bret were very close. Do you guys, do you guys still keep in touch? 
Yeah, he's one of the few guys uh, that uh, after a show uh, that I actually became friends with. Uh, Brett put us on the map. The first week we were on the air, he was a guest on the show. And then the Survivor Series happened, you know, the screw job. And he kept, uh, you know, he called us up and said, I want to come on and talk about it. It's not like there was a lot of places you could do that, you know, sort of a long form interview on television. Uh, and uh, that, that was gold for us. And then Vince had to rebut what he was saying. Uh, and this like was amazing uh for off the record and and for me and uh brett and i you know remain friends i invited him to, him to my house for dinner um which was after his stroke when he had gone to italy to uh to sign autographs and a public appearance and he met a woman who lined up for three hours her name was cincia uh an italian woman who didn't speak any english but he ended up marrying her and he brought her to my house for our, our house for dinner so it's me my wife karen my son Corey, and my daughter casey and bret hart and cincia one person is talking me that's it <laughs> Brett, Brett is very shy and very quiet. Chinsia didn't speak any English. My, my kids have now opted out, and my wife is kind of, I, I, she's certainly not extroverted to the point where she was diving in. So I, I actually said, I'm working my ass off here. Hello? You know, can someone help me out here? But it was, uh, it was cool. We went to a hockey game together, Brett and I, and... He was, and I've never, I've seen this twice in my life where I've been in public with someone really, really famous uh, and the worshiping that people did for Bret Hart. It was, it was, it was amazing to see. So in our seats, people would come up and they would go, they would be shaking, you know, they'd be Mr. Hart. I just wanted to say that you have meant so much to me in my life. I just want to tell you how important you've been. I mean, this was not, hey, Bret Hart, love you, man. This was really serious, emotional stuff. And the other thing is, which may not resonate with you, was Don Cherry. Uh, Don Cherry, a Canadian broadcaster who was iconic. Uh, I was walking down the street doing an interview with him, and, and uh, this massive crowd of people like swarmed us, and not one of them was there to see me. Uh, but Bret Hart is a, a lovely guy who's been through hell and uh, just a good, genuine, quiet soul. So I'm assuming you got no love for Shawn Michaels. Uh, what a great performer Shawn Michaels is. I mean, I, I have nothing against Shawn Michaels. Uh, I think that he probably embraced a little too much the character that he was. Um, like many of us have done in our lives, when we look back, there's things that we said that we probably, you know, maybe regret a little bit. You know, it, did he take it too far, the act? I don't know, but he was unbelievable in the ring and unbelievable with the microphone. So, uh, and when I interviewed him, I, I, it, was, it was very unmemorable. If I remember correctly, I'm not remembering uh, a, ton about, a ton about it. Got it. What is your most awkward broadcasting moment? Um, well, we talked about two of them for sure. You know, one of the things uh, that is challenging for me is that we did 3,800 shows. You know, that adds up to a lot. So we're talking about, you know, five, 6,000 guests because, you know, a lot of days we had four guests on the show. Awkward moment. Uh Jesse Jackson, I'm waiting on the line. So this is uh, this is uh, a double ender that we're doing. Uh, so I'm in the studio. We have a camera shooting him, and um, we're connected by phone. So I was waiting for him, and they kept saying, you know, 
Um, Reverend Jackson will be there in moments and moments. So I'm just sitting there. Right. And, you know, it was it was very cool that, you know, Jesse Jackson was doing a sports talk show with us. So I'm sitting there and I'm all pumped up and he uh, comes on the line and he goes, hello. And I went, uh, Jesse Jackson, Michael Landsberg in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. He goes, call me Reverend Jackson. And it was like, whoa. So I said, call me Rabbi Landsberg. And there was dead silence. Oh, my gosh. It was like I realized I probably crossed the line there. The smart ass Michael got burned on that. And it was probably not appropriate. I mean, he is a reverend and I'm not a rabbi. I just I was, you know, my, my whole shtick with guests always has been, you know, try to loosen them up by engaging them in something. And if you can make them laugh, that's great. If you can make them mad, that's great. Uh, but not that kind of mad. That was uh, that was re- I, that was really awkward. It was like, oh, shit, why did I say that? I did not expect that because you're saying Jesse Jackson. I'm thinking, okay, is there an athlete named Jesse Jackson? And it's like, no, wait, that Jesse Jackson, that Jesse Jackson. Wow. Uh, Because I mean, that's what I loved the most uh, about off the record. The first eight or nine years, really on a daily basis, we were all about talking about the social, moral and political issues that arose from sport or that arise from sport and not hardcore sports. We weren't talking, okay, New England Patriots, you know, who's going to start a quarterback for the New England Patriots? Um, You know, we were all about issues. And I I love that. But that also gave us the license to put on anyone who had an opinion or anyone who was famous. Um, So we put all kinds of people on the show that knew very little about sports, but were hugely famous. I mean, we, we, uh, I mean, this guy knows about sports, but Spike Lee, Spike Lee was like, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm explaining before the show how the show works. And I'm I'm telling him, okay, Spike, I'm going to ask this first question. And, uh, you know, do you want to answer it? He goes, I don't care. I go, well, I like to know who wants to go in first. So there's not that awkward silence. And I say to myself, holy shit, this is so cool. I'm telling Spike Lee, I'm directing Spike Lee. <laughs> so we got to put on um, all kinds of really famous, interesting people um, because we weren't talking typically about hockey or football or or anything like that. We were talking about issues that came from that. I'm, I'm trying to think of other like really fit. Well, I, I mentioned Anthony Kiedis. Uh, we had Pink on one day. We had, uh, I mean, it's such a cool job. You know, they're like, like no one got to meet guests, meet people like I got to meet people because we would put anyone on if they were famous. If they had a movie that they were promoting, Jackie Chan, holy Jackie Chan came in, barely spoke English, but he would work the the uh, the camera by by doing this, and it was like uh, for a half hour, it was awesome. He didn't say anything of value whatsoever. He came in with his family. There was like ten people there, and I'm thinking, wow, this is really cool. Jackie Chan is in our studio, and he's going to um, pretend like he understands what I'm saying, but probably doesn't. Wow, man, that, that that's some serious interview goals right there. Yeah, D- D- Jackie Chan definitely on the bucket list. And you know, what? I, th- I think we'll end it on, on this note here, a positive note. What's the best piece of advice you give anybody for success and good mental health? Uh, okay, well, the first thing about success is is to uh, is to find what you want to do. Not necessarily saying, um, you know, I'm ready to do that right now. But find that thing that you want to do. For me, broadcasting kind of saved my life um, because I, I there was nothing else that I wanted, but I didn't have the guts to go for broadcasting uh, until I realized that I had nothing else. And having nothing else, having no safety net is a huge, huge benefit. 
Um, people say all the time when they would talk to me about broadcasting, they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to uh, try broadcasting. And if I don't make it, I promise my parents I go to law school. And I say, go to law school now because you're going to quit because you're going to fail. We all fail. And if you have a place to fail from and into, you will always take it. And the other thing is, uh, is you're never as good as you think you are, especially when you when you start out, you're going to suck uh, broadcasting in particular, I know. But, um, you know, that sense of humility, that sense of I'm not good now but I'm going to practice more than anyone on the planet because two things ultimately determine broadcasting, whether you're good. One is your natural ability, which you can't change. And the other one is how hard are you going to work, which you can change. So I outworked uh, everybody uh, when, uh, when I wanted to be a broadcaster. No one worked as hard as I did and no one um, stuck with it the way I did because I had nothing else. Michael, oh, and mental health? Yeah share the experience of sharing will help both the sharer and the sharee i don't know if sharee is a word but you know just the whole act of saying out loud hey i battle depression i battle anxiety i'm on medication i'm not ashamed i'm not embarrassed and i'm not weak that is empowering and the first time you say it it may be incredibly difficult but every time you say it you get uh, you get better at it and it gets easier uh, and eventually you could be like me, wind him up wherever he is, and he'll talk about mental health. Like I, I find myself in really uh, unusual circumstances engaging people talking about mental health. Um, so that, that could be you, but you got to say it enough times. Awesome. Michael, well, I really do appreciate the time. It was a pleasure chatting with you. You could find him online at Hey Landsberg on Twitter. Of course, sicknotweek.com. You can also look up the hashtag sicknotweek. You'll see all the great work you guys are doing. Michael, thank you so much. Hey, this was, uh, this was great fun. Uh, thanks, Fred.